begin, I would like us just to put our minds to the things of the Lord. I'm just going to ask that you bow with me in prayer uh, as we get ready to meditate on this really jam-packed psalm that is Psalm 73. So let us pray together. Father, we come before you, Lord, knowing that life at times can be very difficult to grasp. That in this life, there may be things that we ponder about that may be difficult for us to comprehend. But Lord, as we go through Psalm 73, I pray that your word would bring encouragement and nourishment to our souls. And I pray that even at this moment, you help us focus on the things above as we find strength and refuge in you. In Jesus' name, we thank you and we pray. And we all say amen and amen. Psalm 73 is a psalm of conflict. It is a psalm of Asaph in which he's dealing with two truths. Who God is in the midst of life experiences. So what we'll notice is in verses 1 through 16, Asaph is going to raise questions about God's justice in the midst of a chaotic world, it's, it's where is God in light of all this wickedness? That is the question that Asaph is raising in verses 1 through 16. In verses 17 through 28, the second half of this psalm, the answer to that question. Will God meet the wicked in justice? And, and, and the psalm will answer how God does that and the strength that he provides to his believers, to the church. In other words, it is a question that maybe many of us have raised or we ourselves have heard others ask, is God really good? Have you seen this world? Have you not seen the wickedness of this world? Is, 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 is God good? Where is this good God? And whether we've raised that question or heard others ask it, that is the answer that we will find in this psalm. Where is this God? How will he deal with justice? And where is our comfort in this chaos? The title of my sermon this morning is God's Justice and Strength for the Chaos. There is future justice in this chaotic world, but there is also present strength for the Believer, the justice is a future one. But in the midst of this chaos, friends, make no mistake about it, God's presence gives us strength. And so the psalm begins in verse 1, and I want you to take a look with me again. We see the title there. It is a psalm of Asaph, most likely written, written during the uh, Babylon captivity or one of the like. And here's what the psalmist says, verse 1, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. In other words, Asaph is saying, I know that God is good to Israel. And likewise, that God is good to those who are pure in heart. It's theology. And it's good theology. It's a right depiction of God. What Asaph is saying about God is true. God is good to Israel. He is good to his people, the God of Abraham, 
of Isaac and Jacob, this covenantal God, this God who keeps his promises. He is good to his people, theology. He is good to those who are pure in heart. And here purity isn't talking about sexual purity or those who do not commit sin. Rather, the idea of the word is right focus. Those who are pure in their way, in their focus, they're not serving God and other gods. It's not depicting a man who has two masters, as Jesus says in the New Testament. No, these people who God is good to are people who have completely put their trust in him and him alone. They're not deviating. They're not playing this church game of am I with God or am I not with God? These people are pure in heart theology. God is good to them. This is what Asaph knows about God. But then notice the conflict. Verse 2. But as for me, personal reflection. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped away. Notice the contrast. I know God is good. Again, theology. These are truths about God. Asaph is a good theologian. He's got God right. He's expressing and depicting things about God that are true. But right at the moment you see verse 2 and you wonder, so what's the problem? There is conflict. Asaph says, I believe in this good God, but I almost left him. But I almost stumbled. But my, my feet almost slipped. I almost left the faith. I almost lost trust in God. Anyone ever felt that way? When your theology meets life experiences? When you know that God is good, but you're faced with the life that you live in and you're left with this wondering, can I really trust the goodness of God in the life that I live in, in the world that I live in? Now notice why Asaph almost slipped, why Asaph almost leaves the faith. We see it in verse 3. I'm going to read verses 3 to 5 so that we can understand what is the conflict that Asaph is going through? He knows God is good, but his faith, his belief, his, his, the truths that he knows about God are being tested, and here's why. I almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Here's the balance that Asaph is wrestling with. God is good, but look at the wicked. Look at how they live. Look at how the non-Christian walks around life. Verses 3 to 5, to sum it all up, is Asaph's conclusion that the wicked have no worries. And he presents this in three aspects. The wicked have no worries. What don't they worry about? Verse 3, the arrogant and the wicked are what? Prosperous. They've got money. What don't the wicked have to worry about? Material goods. 
They're prosperous. Now, Asaph, as we'll see in verse 14, is looking at his current situation as a follower of Yahweh, as a follower of God. And then he's looking at the wicked and he goes, well, I don't live like they do. I'm not prosperous like they are. Again, the psalm is depicting a people who are in captivity. So he's, he's looking at the wicked and he's putting this, this idea in the balance. Is it really worth following God when all that's ever gotten me is suffering? We'll see it in verse 14. And as I suffer and go through the chaos of life, the wicked have no worries. They're rich, man. They got money. They don't know what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck. Now, this isn't a general statement that everyone who's well off is wicked. That's not what this verse is implying here. So if you're well off, it does not mean you're wicked. But in Asaph's eyes, what he's saying is, when I look at my life and then I look at the non-believer, that looks like the deal. I've gotten the short end of the stick here. So the wicked have no worry, and the first idea here is they don't worry about materialistic goods. In verse 4, we see the second thing that the wicked don't worry about. It says, for they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. What else don't the wicked worry about? They don't worry about suffering. They go through life. This is the picture at ease. They ease in to death. They slide right into death. In other words, in Asaph's eyes, these people don't die of cancer. They die pain-free deaths. They don't get cancer. They don't get leukemia. They don't lose their minds as they get older. Asaph is looking at the wicked and he's saying, they don't suffer. They don't know what suffering means. They have pain-free deaths. And he's looking at his people who are being killed in war, who are suffering poverty. And again, he's weighing this ideology. I know God is good to his people. That's what is written in the word, theology. But as I'm looking at my life experiences, I'm wondering, is it really worth it to follow this God when the non-believer is going through no suffering, when the non-believer doesn't have to worry about materialistic needs. And again, I raise the question, anyone ever been there? Where you're wondering, is it really worth following the faith? Ever since I became a Christian, it seems like life has gotten harder and harder and harder. Look at verse 5. Another reason Asaph says, man, I, I think I need to shift ideologies here. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Not only do the wicked not have to worry about materialistic things, not only do they not know what suffering is, they have pain-free lives, pain-free deaths. They ease into death, but the wicked don't have to worry about unexpected events. It does not happen to them. In other words, the wicked in Asaph's eyes, to put terminology that we would understand, they don't get flat tires. They don't know what that's like. They don't know what it's like to be on your way to work and get a 
into a car accident. The wicked don't experience this. They don't know what it's like to get fired from a job. The wicked do not experience this. Everyone else seems to experience this except for the wicked. This is what Asaph is looking at. Again, this is the conflict. What I know about God and the world around me. Is it really worth following Christ when it seems like the wicked are better off? Now the question is, is this true of the wicked? And the answer, of course, is no. Do wicked people die of cancer? Yes. Are there non-believers who struggle with finances? Yes. This is a revelation that goes deeper into the heart of man. Again, I'll read the beginning of verse 3. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It is a reflection that we do not envy those who are less than us. Who is Asaph looking at here? He's not looking at the wicked who are going through divorce. He's not looking at the wicked who are going job to job to job. It is a reflection of our human nature. We do not compare ourselves with those who are less than us. We always compare ourselves with those who seem to have better lives than us. I wish I had that job. Wish I drove that car. I wish I had a Tesla that would drive me around. We don't compare ourselves to people less than us. We compare ourselves to people that are better than us. And then, like sinful people that we are, we want to put God's justice on trial because of that comparison. In other words, if Asaph looks closely, he would see that not all wicked people have good lives. But yet, he is questioning, where is God? Should I follow God when it seems like the wicked have no need of anything? They've got all the riches. They don't deal with suffering. Nothing unexpected ever happens to them. And as a result, we look at verses 6 through 12. What happens when it seems like no one goes through trials? When everything is easy, here are six characteristics that the wicked have. So Asaph notices that this is how they act as a result of having an easy life. Here's the first one. Actually, the first two are found in verse 6. Notice what it says. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as garment. So in Asaph's eyes, because the wicked seem to have trouble-free life, here's what their attitude is like. They wear pride as a necklace. They flaunt it. They show it. Think of the rap artist who wears bling to show that he's got money. He's not hiding his wealth. He's flaunting it. The, the, the prideful here, the wicked are flaunting their pride. Their swag is the necklace of pride. And their garment is violence. Now, this also speaks of this idea that those in power in Asaph's time were often recognized by the necklaces they wore. So it's speaking of people in authority, government officials, presidents, rulers, kings, and the like. 
And Asaph is saying, they, because they don't go through trials, they flaunt with pride. They show off their pride. And as a result of their high positions, they act in violence. They oppress the poor. They oppress the needy. They do it proudly. Again, notice the metaphor. It's clothing items. They wear necklace as their pride visible. You can see it. They're not hiding it. They wear garments of violence. They're not hiding their actions. A no-worry life results in pride. You can write this down, contrast this to what Paul says about believers in Romans 5, 3 to 6. It is a passage that begins with suffering and the whole thought ends in our character is built up because of suffering. Oftentimes, God will use suffering to make us humble, to make us dependent upon him. And this is the contrast that the wicked do not suffer and they're prideful. They're arrogant. They're violent. Whereas the believer, because he suffers, oftentimes that teaches him humility, endurance, and dependence on God. In other words, suffering is a good thing for the Believer, And again, you can see this in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 6. So what is the result of a worry-free life? According to Asaph, verses 1 and 2, the wicked are prideful and violent. Verse 7, a third aspect of character. They are never satisfied with what they have. Verse 7 says, their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. Now, now here again, we need to understand some of the Jewish culture. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 6, 22 through 24. The eyes are the light to the body. What Jesus is referencing is the things that our eyes are most attracted to are a reflection of an inward reality. This is the metaphor that Asaph is using here. That their eyes desire the things of this world, they're fat. Think about this. If you've ever cooked and you see like meat oozing out with fatness, this is the picture that Asaph is painting that the wicked desire so many things of this world that their eyes are fat with desires. They want more and more and more stuff. And what is the reflection of their fatty eyes? It reflects an inward reality. Their hearts are overflowing with folly. Their hearts overflow with desire. And because their hearts are overflowing with earthly desire, their eyes are attracted to the fatness of this world, to the things of this world. Yet notice what the passage does not say. It says it's overflowing. In other words, they have plenty of stuff. They overflow with materialistic things, yet the passage never says they are satisfied. This is the characteristic of a wicked person. Yes, they desire a lot of things, but the more things they have, the less satisfied they are. The more the careers, the more the fame, the more the following on Twitter and Instagram, the more they get 
the less satisfied they are. It is a continual overflow of follies, but they never meet satisfaction. Why? Because satisfaction of a wicked heart can only be found in the security of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, the things of this world will never satisfy us. And we must beware of seeking after things, thinking that that's what will bring satisfaction. If I only had a husband, I've been single for 20 years. If I only had a husband, then I would truly be complete. If I only had a girlfriend, if I only had a wife, if I only had this job, no friends. What we need is Christ. You want a satisfied heart. You need to look for the Savior that can only bring that satisfaction, and it is Jesus Christ. This is the problem in verse 7. So here we see already, because the wicked live carefree lives, they are prideful and violent, and they are never satisfied. Verses 8 through 9, they speak arrogantly. Look at this. It says, they scoff and speak with malice. Lawfully, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Here's the idea as I move quickly through these verses. Because of their position, they feel confident in speaking maliciously. Because they're rulers, they feel like they can say whatever they want. And this is heightened in verse 8 with the word lawfully. In Hebrew, it literally means light, a height, I'm sorry. In other words, the higher the position, the more comfortable they feel in making threats. The higher they go up the chain of command, the more comfortable they feel in making threats. And not only to the people, but they make threats to the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. They feel so high up in their positions that they think they can tell the heavens what to do. God, your laws are wrong. You've heard that lately on abortion and same-sex marriage and transgender or not, is this not how the world speaks? The Bible is old school. The Bible is outdated. We need a revision on the Word of God. When is the revised version coming out? And friends, I need to let you know this morning there is no revised version. The word that God has given us is the only word we have, and it is inerrant, and it is sufficient. And the only thing we can do is submit to it or reject it. But the wicked think that they can accuse God. They can tell God what's right and what's wrong, and they strut. Their tongue struts. Here's what it means. When they make a decree of law, it comes into action. It struts through the land. When, when someone in position makes a decree, everyone has to submit to it. So another characteristic is the wicked feel comfortable speaking in arrogance. They feel comfortable in this way of life. Verse 10, another characteristic of the wicked. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. The Hebrew here actually says that they fill their cups with water and are drained. Here's the idea here. I don't have time to explain the two views, but basically they are full of waters and drained by them. What verse 5 is letting us know is they have followers. These people, the wicked, have followers, and the followers look to see what they can get out of them. To illustrate this quickly, 
Think of a fighter who's just won a big fight. And then he tells the whole audience, I'm going to be at club so-and-so after the fight. You can come and party with me. Now, the people go to party with him, but why do they go? Because they're hoping that he might buy them drinks, that he might give them money. In, in other words, the idea here in, in, in this verse is that they follow the wicked hoping to get something out of them. Or like those who follow billionaires on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, hoping that you might be the lucky somebody whom the billionaire gives monies to. You follow hoping you can get something out of them. So these people, yes, they are prideful, violent. Yes, they are never satisfied. They speak arrogantly, but they have followers. But there's a step further in this, verse 11. And they say, how then can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Really? Does God know? This is a question of care. Does God really care about you, Asaph? Does God really care about you, you and me, this morning as we go through life? Can we really put our trust in the most high? And then verse 12, Asaph says, they increase in wealth. In other words, it's not getting worse for them. It's getting better. They're getting richer and richer and richer. And here's the reflection that Asaph gives, verses 13 through 16. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said this, I will speak thus. I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Here's the self-reflection Asaph has. Is it really worth following God? Asaph uses the word, in vain have I served God. Verse 14 or 13 is a depiction of pure motives and rightful living. He's had a pure heart before God and he's saying, when I look at the wicked and then I think about the goodness of God, I go, man, I'm following God in vain. This ain't a good life. This is not the best life. Why am I following God? And, and here's the wrestle. This is why he was wrestling with this thought of God's goodness. Because notice verse 14. I have personal experience. There's a difference in questioning where is God when others are suffering. But that question gets heightened when you yourself are in the midst of chaos. And so he says in verse 14, I am stricken and rebuked every morning. In other words, every day I wake up, I got to deal with some type of chaos. And the wicked do not. You see why the theology is in question. It's not simply that he's seeing his people suffer it's, I know that God is good because it's in his word, it's in the law, it's in the Torah, it's in our Bibles and the Old and New Testament. I know that God is good, it's what the Bible says, but this is what I'm living. Again, I ask, anyone ever been there where the truth of God's word comes into play when what I'm living through questions my faith? And here's what verse 17 says, it's a transition of thought. This is what I was thinking, 
This is how I was feeling. In verse 15 and 16, we see that Asaph does not speak this out loud. It is in an internal wrestle. And thankfully, he doesn't because, as he says, I could have led your children astray. In other words, it's what he's saying. Had he spoken these things out loud as truthful, he could have led others astray. So what happens? Where's the shift? I thought this way. In other words, look at verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. I thought the good life was the wicked life until I went into the sanctuary of the Lord. Friends, never doubt the power of gathering together in the house of the Lord. But thankfully, you and I don't need to come to a building to approach God. In Christ, we can come confidently before the throne of God. So here is the remedy to feeling this way. We go to the Lord. In prayer, it raises the question, do we pray? Do we find strength in the Lord, not simply with our wit and our knowledge, but do we come on our knees before God as the chaos of this world rises? Do we humble ourselves before Almighty God? Do we pray to the Lord? It is when Asaph comes to the house of the Lord that everything changes. Verse 18, three aspects of God's justice. Asaph, as he meditates on the Lord, realizes quite a few things. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Yes, the wicked have prosperity, but their foundation is not secure. It's in slippery places. I was in L.A. recently, and I'm driving through the highway, and you see what oftentimes is depicted in the news. These mansions are on hill cliffs, and that's why oftentimes when mudslides occur, the houses come tumbling down. You see it in the news where houses are tumbling down. This is the idea here. The wicked have prosperity, but their foundation is not secure. It's slippery. Think of when you were in high school, or for those of you who are in high school, and you are running down the hallway being silly, and you miss the slippery when wet sign that the janitor puts in the middle of the hallway, but because you're trying to be cool and impress the girl that you like, you're acting a fool running through the hallway, and eventually you're going to what? Slip and fall. This is what the psalmist is depicting here. Yes, the wicked are prosperous, but eventually they will slip and fall. They may reign for a while, but they will slip and fall. The idea is seen more in verse 19. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. And here is the emphasis. It's futuristic. So what is the answer to the question, where is God's goodness in the midst of an evil world? When will the evil man be punished? Answer, in the future. And it'll be in an instant, in a moment, these men will be high up and all of a sudden their empires will crumble. Those who are in the most wanted list, who have never met justice, will meet justice when God returns. When Christ returns, God's judgment will be in a moment. It'll be sudden. It'll be quick. Think about it this way. What took years and years to build... In second, the wicked 
will crumble. The reputation that took years and years to build, the wealth that took years and years to build, all the scrutiny that goes with all that wealth, in a future, God's justice will bring it to an end, and it'll be in seconds. In other words, a life wasted on things, and God destroys it in second. Verse 20, this idea continues. So not only does God set them on a not secure foundation, in a moment he destroys them. And verse 20, God will end their wickedness. It'll come to an end. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Think about this. You go to sleep at night. And you're dreaming of being in New Zealand. Walking through the prairies of where the Lord of the Rings was filmed. You see Frodo Baggins' house and you're just walking through there. Or, or you're, you're, you're dreaming and you're in Cancun somewhere. Sipping on a coconut. Looking at... Uh, the beach and the waves, and it's just such a peaceful dream. Or, or for you city folk, you're in Paris with your boo, with your wife, and, and the sun is setting, and there you are in Paris holding her hands and singing French songs. You don't know French, but in your dream, you're singing French songs, and then out of nowhere, eh, 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 you're like, whoa, and you wake up, and you go, dang it, why did the alarm have to go off? This was such a great dream. God is that alarm clock for the wicked. He wakes them up unexpectedly. They're in this dreamland and then reality hits. Here is the comfort for the believer. All the injustice that you see in this world, all those people will meet their God. They will come face to face with Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead. So whether Hitler got justice here on earth, if he did not repent, he's got a date with Jesus Christ. It's futuristic. There is a judgment that is coming and God will put an end to them. And here's the problem for us. We put God on trial. We get mad that God destroys the wicked and people often say, Oh, man, how can God kill the um, Amalekites? That's a horrible God. I can't worship that God. And at the same time, they demand justice. Where is God when evil occurs? Answer, he destroys the wicked. And the world says, oh, he's wicked. And when he doesn't, when he shows mercy and grace, the world still says, well, he's wicked. Where is God? In other words, God is wicked if he exercises justice and God is wicked if he does not. That is the error of the world's judgment on God. They can't, he can't win in their minds, but thankfully, it doesn't matter what they think. At the end of the day, this is what Psalm is letting us know. In a future world, in a future time, millions and millions of years from now, all the wicked of this earth will meet their maker. They will be judged, and God's justice will be good. And so Asaph reflects again, and I really have to move quickly here. Verses 21 and 22, look at what it says. My soul was embittered when, and I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and arrogant. I was like a beast towards you. Asaph recognizes that he was embittered. 
He was looking at the wicked and embitterment. His, his heart pricked here means his heart was stabbed. It was in pain as he wrestled with this idea. Is it really worth following God in the midst of chaos? He says, I was, this is brutish, but really the Hebrew says, I was stupid. I acted foolishly. I was like a beast. He had lost his senses. He was out of control. I acted foolishly. And now notice in verse 2 he says, I almost slipped. Why? Why didn't Asaph completely leave the faith? Friends, this is good news for you and I. Verses 23 and 24. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Why didn't Asaph slip? Why didn't he stumble? Why didn't he give up on God in the midst of this chaotic world? So here's what I said at the beginning. There is justice for the chaos. It's futuristic. But now we shift to another truth. There is present strength in the midst of chaos. So as believers look for future justice in Christ's return, we must also know that in this chaotic world, there is strength. Why didn't Asaph leave the faith? It's not because he's witty. It's not because he's smart. It's not because God did his part and Asaph did his Arminian theology. No, it's quite the opposite, friends. Notice what the text says. I did not slip, not because I clinged to Christ, not because I held on to the Lord, but rather the opposite, because he held on to me, because God held on to him. Why have you and I not given up on the faith in the midst of chaos? Because every time I want to slip, God in his sovereignty holds his elect in his hands. We'll see this in the gospel of John, whom the father has placed in the son's hand. No one can take away. No one can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. Friends, we do not slip away, not because I hold on to Christ, but because he holds on to me and he doesn't just hold on to me yeah you can give him a round of applause if you like but he doesn't just hold on to me he leads me he counsels me as verse 24 says he leads me with his word and he doesn't just lead me he leads me all the way to glory he doesn't just initiate the work he finishes it this is why we can say what Paul says in Philippians he who has begun a good work in me will finish it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's not because I cling to him that I make it to glory. It's because he clings to me and leads me to glory that I get there. And Asaph makes a final reflection, verses 25 through 28. And he prays this prayer. Notice the shift. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. In the earlier verses, all he's contemplating is the wicked and their prosperity. But after entering the house of the Lord, after coming to God in prayer and reverence and worship, his thought shifts. And now he says, I'm eternally minded. Whom have I in heaven but you? This earth and all its things are no longer attractive. This is the response of believers. We live on earth, but our minds are in heaven. 
Yes, we live in this life, but we are in this world, but we are not of this world. We see this idea in, in, in the letter of 1 Peter. We are heavenly minded. The believer is heavenly minded. And as a result, the only thing the believer desires here on earth is more and more of God. The wicked wants more things. Their eyes are fat with desires of things that never satisfy. But the believer desires God and God Alone, he is the desire, the treasure of our hearts. And yet, look at this reality, verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail. In this life, I may experience pain, even pain that brings me death. But here's what he says. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is the strength in this chaotic world. As I'm in the suffering, as I'm in the struggle, as I await this future justice in this chaotic world, I can also rest assured that God will give me strength in this world. It's not just a future justice that I hope for, but as I wait for Christ to return, I stand confidently in knowing that God brings strength in the midst of chaos. And so he concludes, verse 27, the wicked are far from God, for behold, I'll read it, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. So where is God in the midst of an evil world? He's on his throne. And in the future, these wicked people, if they don't see justice in this world, the rapists, the child trafficker, those on the FBI most wanted list, those in other countries that we don't know about, they will find justice. Those who are far from God will perish. There is a future justice. But look at what he says in verse 28. But as for me, it's a contrast to verse 15 when he says, is this all in vain? Now look at his conclusion in verse 28. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Here's what Asaph says at the end of this contemplation. It's good for me to be near God. In the presence of God is where I need to be. It's where my focus needs to be. It is good to be near God, and I've made the Lord my strength. Now, earlier we saw that this was an internal wrestle, and Asaph did not speak what he was wrestling with. But now, he says, I will tell of all your works. I will evangelize. I will tell others that this is the good life. In other words, better to be in suffering with Christ than to have a rich bank account or all the fame in the world or all the prosperity and be far away from Christ. Asaph concludes, better this life with God than to have all these pleasantries that will come to an end in seconds and be far from God. And this reality, I will tell to others. So I end with this. We live in this conflict of what we know about God and our life experience. And I pray that you would know that this chaotic world will come to an end. And in the future, it will find justice in the Lord. And while we're in chaos, there is strength for the struggle. There is strength in God. There is strength and goodness in us being near God. 
And this idea of Psalm 73 is beautifully, ex beautifully expressed in Horatio Spafford's life. You may not have heard his name, but probably you're familiar with the hymn he wrote. It's called, It Is Well With My Soul. Horatio had a business that came to an end in the great Chicago fire of 1871. He loses his business, and then a few days later, or during that same time period, his four-year-old son dies of scarlet fever. So here's a man who's just lost his business to the great Chicago fire, and he's lost his son. And so thinking on how to meditate on all this, he tells his wife and the rest of his children, and he sends them off to England for a vacation while he sorts matters in Chicago and then is planning to meet them there. On their way to England, they're traveling through ship, they're crossing the Atlantic, and the ship goes through a crash, an accident. 200 people die, of which include all of Horatio's remaining family except his wife. His wife makes it to England, sends back a telegram letting Horatio know what has happened, and she says, saved alone, what shall I do? So Horatio has lost his business, his children, his wife is in chaos, wondering, what shall I do? Horatio takes a ship to go meet her, and the story goes like this, as he enters the waters where he thinks the crash occurred and his children died, he writes this hymn, and it says this, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea and billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul, with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. May that be our cry in the midst of chaos as we find refuge in the strength of God Almighty. I may not understand it, I may not have all the answers, but it is well, it is well with my soul. Let us stand up and pray together this morning. Father, as we stand before you, we know that oftentimes the truth of who you are is challenged with our life experiences. But Lord, I pray that we would come to see that it is better to live with you than to live without you. As Asaph concludes, it is good to be near you because you are our refuge and our strength. Lord, teach us how to make you our refuge and our strength, knowing that there is a future justice coming and knowing that there is a present strength for the chaos. In Jesus' name, we thank you and we pray. And we all say amen. And amen. You may give Jesus a round of applause this morning. Um.